With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hello there. Welcome. (laughs) This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, she who has been doing this somehow for five whole years and still loves it more than anything, Liv. And fine, I definitely haven't been having conversations with authors and experts for five years, but it is one of my favorite developments of the podcast. And because of that, I wanted to dedicate an anniversary episode to these conversations. That and again, it was my birthday and this is more fun and easy for me than preparing an entire new episode. So here we are. I've gone through a bunch of my past conversation episodes and found favorite moments, some of the most interesting things I've learned or discussed on the show, some of the most fun and best moments, whatever I could find, honestly, just that I wanted to share again with you all. You can find a link to the list of episodes that are included here in the episode's description so that you can listen to the full conversations if you're so inclined. I didn't include any of the LGBTQIA episodes, though, just because we already revisited all of those conversations last month, and it means that I have fewer to look through because, oh my gods, I've done so many conversations already. This is the anniversary special. 
let's learn about the ancient Mediterranean. better to start in this episode than with one of the very first conversations that I ever had on the show with one of the biggest authors in the field, because that's just how things went. I started big. Don't worry, it wasn't stressful at all. I spoke with Bettany Hughes all about Aphrodite. She'd just written a book about all about the goddess, and it was just so incredible to learn all that she had to share. This bit is one of the highlights, for sure. Looking at Aphrodite as the goddess of sex work in ancient Greece and what that meant, how it worked, so much more. And um, there are kind of all kinds of versions of the story that, uh, you know, the very first prostitute was Aphrodite in human form or, or that she sort of gave her spirit to the first prostitute. Um, but but there's something a bit more kind of, um, you know, in a, in, in a way a bit more geographical, I think, actually, to that connection, that Aphrodite was thought to be the god of mixes, of mixing things up and the god, so, so mixing up human relationships, so the relationships between, uh, you know, men and women, between societies, between armies on the battlefield, but also between places. So She's often a goddess who's worshipped at the edge of things. And of course, a port is where the sea meets the land. And so she was often the patroness of ports and of the sailors who, who visited them. And, you know, it's a sort of stereotype and truism that it was true in the Bronze Age and is still true today that you find sex workers at ports to, to service the needs of those, um, those traveling traders and raiders and sailors. And I think that's probably why she ends up being connected with prostitutes, in fact, because she was physically in charge of the places where they operated. But there's also this kind of interesting line of inquiry about sacred prostitutes, of sacred sex workers um, in the temples of Aphrodite. And there's a sort of hint in, in one of the works of Herodotus, the, the, the Greek father of history, that, um, that she is honoured by uh, women who will go to her temple and be paid to have sex. And that, that payment is then offered as a tribute to the goddess and taken by the kind of the, the priests uh, of the temple temple complex. There's a lot of dispute, dispute about this because the sources are very slim. Uh, there isn't a lot of archaeological evidence for it. And there's a possibility that actually come the Christian period, one of the things that, that Christian reformers and Christian fathers were really outraged by was the worship of Aphrodite and the, and the kind of explicit worship of, of sex and sexual desire. And so there are these kind of thundering um, uh, uh, passages from the, the, the church fathers talking about the need to, to purge the influence of Aphrodite and to get rid of these shameful men and women and the, the men and women who serviced other men and women in her temples. So it's almost that, you know, we, most of our evidence comes from this kind of negative diatribe. So quite rightly, people have questioned it and wondered whether it was almost just they were being held up as a kind of example of the kind of terrible, morally corrupt thing that could happen in pre-Christian religious centres. But but then I, I just think if you think about it, they're actually about the kind of beautiful strangeness of sex and the sex act and the fact 
that it does take you to another realm, um, that it is an extraordinary place that you can lose yourself in, um, that sex was definitely um, part of a number of, of, of the rites and rituals of the ancient and the prehistoric world. In a strange way, it would be odd if there weren't some kind of sex worker at the sanctuaries of uh, the goddess whose business was sex and sexual desire. So I think almost by as a sort of process of elimination, we should imagine that so-called sacred prostitutes uh, did exist. And, And also you have to really mind shift and, and, and not be thinking ahistorically here, but put yourself back those thousands of years where um, uh, sacrificing yourself, sacrificing your body for uh, a god or a goddess literally meant to make it sacred. You're fakiing it sacri, you know, you're, you're making yourself sacred. And that was a huge honour. So I'm sure there was uh, corruption and manipulation. I'm sure that that as always in the kind of sad story of, of humans, something which might start off with a kind of um, uh, uh, purity and parity that somebody ends up exploiting it somewhere down the line. But but I think that um, there probably were some form of sacred sex workers in some of her shrines and sanctuaries. And what is certain is that she was considered to be the goddess who, who kept an eye on sex workers and was their patron. And there's this incredible discovery from Athens uh, from the Keramikos area of Athens, which is uh, just at the kind of the edges of the city, um, close to the cemetery area, where we know that um, prostitutes, both male and female, operated, and they had these kind of horrible living conditions, just kind of like stalls, really, um, where where Athenians and visitors would go for what were euphemistically called middle of the day marriages. And when this area was being excavated, there was this incredible find of this beautiful, um, almost unique silver medallion showing Aphrodite, the goddess Aphrodite, riding a goat. You know, you can kind (laughs) of draw draw whatever conclusion you want to from that with a kind of beautiful little eros clambering up a ladder. And again, this is no coincidence because um, the Greek word for ladder is climax. And we talk about climaxes today in the the sexual act. So so there's all kind of allusions to, to, to the act of sex and the kind of transformative um, nature of sex and sexuality, and and it is no coincidence that that was found there um, in in amongst the living and working spaces of the sex workers. So so she was definitely there for for prostitutes. But I think more than it just being about sex, it was also about where they where they were in cities and at, and at ports and not just kind of raw carnal rutting sex but something to do with the transportive transformative nature of of the sex act one of the other earliest conversations that i had on the show before it was a regular thing that i was doing was with the wonderful Anne wankaya hayward when we spoke about both of our favorite mythological women medusa This conversation came out of both of us having had experiences online where angry men who wanted to scream at us about what is and is not quote-unquote true about the story of Medusa. It had become a constant issue on Twitter, mainly, but Anwen also had to deal with it through articles being written, always about the opinions and interpretations of women being considered wrong by the men who were certain that they understood ancient Greek better than we did. 
It was funny and consistent enough that we wanted to talk about on the show. What we ended up getting was a fascinating conversation about what it's like to be a woman on the internet, what it's like to speak about Medusa as a woman on the internet, but also the varied issues about surviving sources, extant versions, and what we know about ancient Greek sources versus what we know that we don't know. I absolutely love this episode. This is how the world began. Medusa was there. Poseidon did something quite nasty. And then there were monsters that came out of her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And she suffered a woeful fate, I think, is the translation I've seen often. Yeah. And I think that's like literally it. Like that's all we hear. We don't hear what her fate actually is. We just hear that it was like, as you say, woeful. Yeah. It was a bad, a bad thing that happened. And well, and Hesiod is is such a problematic figure in general. I mean, obviously, he's one of the only sources we have that are that old and that talked about myths more broadly and not just, you know, Homeric stories. Um, But at the same time, he was like notoriously misogynistic and all of his interpretations should be understood with a like the lens through the lens of this man did not like women so maybe let's interpret it accordingly yeah and and i think also as as well as that like through the lens of this man did not create these myths like these are Mm -hmm. not original stories that he just sat down one evening in front of a roaring (laughs) fire and committed to paper do you know what i mean like he's drawing on existing oral traditions and not just from the local area that he lives in but from all over his kind of cultural experience. And I think that what a lot of people like, I won't name him just to be polite, but like the man who wrote the article I responded to, they make the mistake of thinking that because this is the oldest extant version of the myth, that is synonymous with this is the oldest version of the myth. And that's just factually incorrect. It's nonsense. And it's one of those things, I mean, this is something I encounter all the time in every story I tell, which is, you know, the varied versions of everything that we have, you know, questioning what existed before those versions were written down or what versions we lost through time, what weren't copied over and over again so that we have them and and things like that. And then at the same time, the people who would write them down and the people whose works would then get copied. Um, I make a lot of comments about how the stories we have were written down by men. And so we should understand them accordingly. And I've had people try to call me on that, you know, as if they're right. (laughs) Um, But it was things like, well, no, women clearly told the stories to their children. So clearly women had an influence in all of that. And therefore that's all wrong. And, and I mean, I'm sure women told stories to their children and I'm sure they were different from what we have, but in order for something to be, uh, for, for it to have reached us, it had to have been copied over and over and over again. And they didn't copy the work of women over and over and over again. I mean, there's a reason we only have fragments of Sappho. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things of, you know, we, the things we have from, from ancient Greece are, are based around the opinions of men. And that's not to say that that's what existed only back then. It's what we have now. Well, exactly. And, and that's, yeah, that's it, isn't it? Is that when you say that the corpus of literature that we have is very male dominated or, Uh, is kind of written through the lens of male experience and male values. You're not saying, hey, ancient Greek women were entirely passive figures in their lives and didn't tell stories. What you're saying is that the stories that were preserved for us to read were preserved 
for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> because of the patriarchy. Um. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And, and I think um, it's kind of like if you look at, for example, other versions of the stories that we know existed and were contemporaneous but weren't copied down. So like we know, uh, just as a kind of random example, the version of the uh, Persephone myth as told as part of the rite of initiation for the Eleusinian mysteries, that wasn't written down because it was a secret mystery cult. Does that mean that they didn't have their own version of the myth? Nope. It just means that we have no idea what it was. And speaking of very early conversations that I've had on the show, this one is with Meg Finlayson, who it really stands out for me because we talked not only about Alexander the Great broadly, but specifically the movie Alexander, which I had not seen in ages, and which is such a weird and interesting piece of classical reception. And notably, Meg knows it very, very well. They were an absolute wealth of information when it comes to the man himself, and as played by Colin Farrell. <laughs> we had so much fun talking about the movie, but also Alexander. And as I'm about to share with you in this clip, the very weird choices that were sometimes made by the movie when it comes to just depicting classical and pre-Hellenistic Greece. But they went along with these really bizarre cave paintings that didn't remotely resemble anything I've seen when it comes to to Greek iconography. And then also given the time period, like we're talking pretty late in the Greek world. Um, so to me, it was all very primitive for something that is that it, we're not in a primitive time when it comes to Alexander, like we're we're post the Peloponnesian War, the Persian War, the height of Athens, like they are a very um, sort of high level people at this point. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a strange um, choice. I've looked a little bit, but not extensively. I'm not really an archaeologist at heart, but I've looked a bit at the excavations of Pella because I think in the last sort of 20 years or so, they have excavated the site at Pella and Vergina, which is the kind of heartland of Massil. And they found a lot of very interesting um, artifacts. There are tombs um, in Pella and Vergina. There's a famous tomb too, I think is the most famous, where they kind of um and ah between whether it belongs to Philip II, like Alexander's actual father, whether it belongs to somebody else. Um, but there's no, like, caves. I remember watching the scene, you can hear, like, sort of water dripping faintly. <laughs> and it's really like they're in a grotto. As far as I know, as far as what I've read, there aren't really any kind of underground caves. And certainly the style that they choose, it almost looks Neolithic in a way. And it, it doesn't even resemble sort of archaic or geometric um stylings i think probably a much better choice would have been to make it look like vase paintings because they kind of have that crude or well not really crude because they're still beautiful but i suppose crude compared to what we think of as classical sculpture they still have that kind of rudimentary archaic old look to them if you can imagine like a fifth century vase with the nice scenes on it i think that would have been a better choice but yeah the cave paintings were were quite a fascinating I don't know whether it's an editorial choice or di directorial choice. I'm not really a film studies. I'm not good with film studies vernacular, but it was definitely um, interesting to me. And from what I've sort of sort of read around the film, I don't think anyone quite has an answer for why. <laughs> I think we were just trying to think, huh, that's really weird. Why are we got caveman paintings in, you know, mid fourth century Macedon? Because as you say, it's definitely not a rudimentary 
um, <laughs> or kind of rural. Well, it is it is rural place, but they certainly are drawing upon the artistic traditions of you know Athens at, at its height. That's you know we're a hundred years gone. They know those styles by now. So it's yeah. So it's, it's a very strange um, addition, I think. <laughs> And then there was the time I spoke with Natalie Haynes about her book, A Thousand Ships. And well, it was great. <laughs> Obviously, how could it not be? The book is amazing. I'm a huge fan of Natalie's writing. And in this bit, we talked about how Clytemnestra is a complex and morally righteous character, even when she kills her husband. Because I mean, he deserved it, you know? I mean, the thing is, she, she she has perfectly good reasons for murder within the moral code of the time in which she lives. Yes. Right? <laughs> so, you know, taking revenge for a dead child is a perfectly legitimate reason in Bronze Age Greece for taking someone's life. It obviously isn't now, but that's, you know, one of the things that's extraordinary about the Oresteia is that it, it kind of maps that moment in in human civilization where we go from from, like, within the family revenge to societal justice. So instead of retributive justice, where you kill the person who's injured you, and then their relative kills you in exchange, and then, and then, and then, and then, and it never ends, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the world ends up blind and toothless. It moves to being something which can be settled in the courts of law. Although, of course, it's worth bearing in mind that at that point, women lose all kind of um, representation themselves, because obviously they're not jurors in ancient Greece and fifth century Athens, they're not, um, if they're prosecuted, they're, you know, they're prosecuted kind of via their husband, they're defended via their husband. So they stop having any kind of autonomy. So in, in lots of ways, it's a fantastic moment that's sort of documented by the Oresteia, this, this moment where we stop taking revenge and start looking to society to resolve these issues rather than making it personal vengeance. But it, it sidelines women. It takes justice or retribution out of the household where women can have some power and into society, which in 5th century Athens means they have no power at all. So it's an extraordinary play. But it's worth bearing in mind that there are versions of Clytemnestra where she's much less transgressive. You know, when the Romans get hold of her, Ovid, for example, who I, you know, I know you're a fan of as well. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but in his version of her, then in, I can't remember if it's in the Ars Amatoria maybe, or the, I think it's in the Ars Am. Um, he uh, has her as a sort of, She's, she's sort of a neurotic housewife who's been having this affair and she's worried she's going to get found out. And that's why she's sort of trying to work out how she can, you know, not get caught. And that's how Agamemnon ends up dying. But he ends up, I'm pretty sure, in the Ovid, I think he's killed by, by Augustus again. So she loses all this kind of venging fury, you know, mother um, trying to right the wrongs done to her children. And she becomes you know the the woman having an affair whose whose boyfriend kills her husband which is a much less transgressive version of her which doesn't mean it's not interesting and not valid of course there's no right version of a myth but i would be lying if i said it was my favorite my favorite is Aeschylus all day long and while we're on the subject of Clytemnestra i spoke with the wonderful amy hines all about the often maligned and misunderstood woman I, I actually did my undergraduate dissertation on uh, Clytemnestra and Helen and their sort of place and their, their representation as Spartan women. And it, Hesiod kind of sums up what Clytemnestra has to endure forever now. So Hesiod says that he who believes a woman believes cheaters. And that, for me, encapsulates <laughs> what, what Clytemnestra has to go through 
up until now. Absolutely. So, you know, even when she's it, talking to Agamemnon in um, in the underworld, in the Odyssey, mm-hmm. Agamemnon's like, well, you know, what that horrible bitch, she killed me. No one should believe women because... Odysseus definitely don't believe Penelope when you get back to Ithaca because God knows what she's been up to because my wife murdered me. And it's a real shame that no one's kind of, no one seems to be able to look behind this aspect of Clytemnestra where actually she does have all this contextual stuff. It's not her curse. The curse is Agamemnon's and his family's. And um, she, she does a terrible thing because she has just been pulled into this curse and all of her background everything that has fed up to the point where she murders Agamemnon has created her has created this event and she just honestly does not deserve (laughs) she doesn't deserve the way that she is characterized at all um because none of it, I don't think, is really her fault in many ways. I think there's enough to say that she has enough agency to make this decision to murder Agamemnon, which is obviously <laughs> unfortunate. Um, but other than that, I think even that, I think often Agistus's role in Agamemnon's murder is very often underplayed itself. So she's often given full agency in that when... It is something that is not entirely her action either. I find Clytemnestra to be one of the most compelling characters from Homeric stories, not least because I think that Agamemnon absolutely deserved his fate. But also, she's just got such complexities when it comes to her motivations, her actions, the role she plays in Agamemnon's murder, depending on the source you're reading... It's something both Natalie and Amy brought up, and both were coming at her from a different position when it comes to this role in the act of murder and the role of Aegisthus. And I think together these two clips just really emphasize how varied the sources are, how much we can see different sides of Clytemnestra without even going beyond the ancient sources and just the actions of the Oresteia generally. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Continuing on with conversations that I recorded right when I started making this a regular thing is another, like the one with Amy Hines, that came out during a special series of episodes that I did in 2021 about the misunderstood women of myth. This conversation is a real favorite among so many listeners because it is generally about the goddess Persephone. Ah, uh, you all love her. I spoke with Ellie Mack and Roberts for the first time back in 2021 to hear about all things Persephone, and I learned so many incredible facts, namely about the practices of the Locrians when it comes to Persephone and girls getting married, and <sighs> it blew my mind in the most incredible way. But when I was listening through, picking this clip, I found this section where she instead talks about the goddess Eris and the titanic and primordial goddesses more broadly, about what they meant for understanding Greek myth and the larger implications. Plus, Ellie touches upon the game Hades, which I know so many of you love and want to hear more about. So it just felt like a particularly interesting clip to play. The thing that I love about that Eris story as like the origin story for the Trojan War is it takes all of the agency away from Zeus. And I think that in a lot of cases, the way that myths have been written in the collections that, you know, we all grew up with and that have their genesis in those 19th century collections of myth, they write out a lot of these very powerful primordial and titanic goddesses to give, like, the moral high ground, such as it is, to <laughs> Olympian gods, male gods, not the goddesses, obviously. Never. And that, you know, being able to kind of spend time diving into what these goddesses are is deeply reassuring for, you know, a woman who is raising girls, who wants to be able to give something of ancient history, of classical antiquity to my daughters, to my female students, to my male students, to, you know, everybody in a way that is not just like, there were these gods and they did problematic things, but at the end of the day, they're amazing. <laughs> because through these primordial and titanic goddesses, we can really actively problematize the behavior of those gods mm -hmm. um, and this is something that I 
really love about the way that Supergiant's Hades. I'm not sure if you've been, if you've played it. No, but I've all. been told to a trillion oh, times. Yes, you should. Yeah, it's definitely on my list. But I'm too into Assassin's Creed Odyssey right now. Still, oh, fair. Because it took me a long time to play that. Fair. That's fair. But yeah, they they have done some really interesting things with, particularly the character of Nyx, mm. but also with Demeter. I don't. I just sort of don't really want to go into it too much because there's a lot to say about what they do with Demeter, and she is quite problematic in a lot of ways. But yeah, the way that they deal with the primordial, um, and even chaos, who is a they? Ooh, that seems so accurate. But also, uh, him, mm. which is is very to me felt very genuine. And when they're called they, and when they're called him, feels really telling about the character rather than the storytelling so yeah I think that there's some really you know interesting ways that we can use some of these gods like Eris that you know even just thinking about them and and highlighting that they exist and have you know a lot to do with stories like the Trojan War is yeah amazing Next up is a conversation I had with the author and poet Nikita Gill, who is so absolutely lovely. We talked about so, so many things, but of course, lots of Medusa, because I am me. But we also talked about how Medusa relates to colonialism and so much more. It was really just so fascinating and such a thrill. This clip, though, surprise, surprise, is some Medusa, because it really stuck out to me when I was listening back. And just a warning, we do talk about Medusa very specifically as a survivor of assault, and that bleeds into a brief discussion of modern survivors of assault as well. So just take heed in listening to this bit. (laughs) There's this section in in, in Natalie Haynes' new book, um, Mm. Pandora's Jar, where she, she has a whole chapter on Medusa. And there's something, and it really, I can't forget that paragraph basically where she talks about Perseus and she says, this is after Perseus has killed her and he's got Medusa's head, right? And he, he, he basically takes care of the head with far more care than anyone has ever cared for Medusa in her life. Mm-hmm. That, that because it's useful to him. That's the only reason he cares and he like places it carefully and he looks after it and he makes sure it never goes. And I looked at all of that and I was like, oh my God, even in death, the only way that this woman is cared about is through her uses to men. Yeah. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because I know she's fictional. But she is such a metaphor for every survivor and what we go through, yeah. right? Like, how do you, like, when you have survived sexual assault, you don't just, like, heal from it because you are accused again and again of, like, making it up. You're gaslit. You're told that, where's your evidence? You're told, everyone knows. And I refuse to believe that even the people who ask for this don't know. It is very hard to prove sexual assault. Like, yeah. It really is. It's very hard. Like women have gone in and had rape kits done and there have been lawyers who've been able to prove in court, despite the fact that there was an actual rape kit, there was trauma, there were all sorts of terrible things happening to this woman. They've been able to say that, no, 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 she just, she, she wanted it that way. And the guys got gone free. And I look at Medusa's story and that's what I see. Shifting topics a bit. 
I want to share something from one of the very few episodes I've done that so directly relates to a historical figure, Cleopatra. Again, last year in this Misunderstood Women series, I had the wonderful hosts of the Partial Historians, Dr. Rad and Dr. G, come on the show to give me and you listeners a rundown on the life of Cleopatra, what made her famous, and what's much less known about this woman that she and herself has become a myth. In this section, too, we also hear about Mark Antony's other wife, Fulvia, with some hints at how incredibly cool she was. So listen to the Partial Historians podcast for so, so much more in Roman history. They're wonderful. Uh, So she decides to strike a deal with Antony that she would help him if he (laughs) agrees to kill all her rivals, including her sister, who is still out there living in exile. Oh, yeah. So Arsinoe is what holed up in Ephesus, Ephesus, which is quite nearby Tarsus. Mm. She's like, well, since you're here, Antony, the way you could prove that you really like me, since it seems like you say you do... (laughs) Uh, maybe you could help me out with this situation. So that happens, and uh, but unfortunately, Antony can't start his campaign straight away, which means that he has to winter with Cleopatra, and they get to spend a little bit of quality time together. Uh, this is like a great moment. So like the winter in Alexandria, apparently Antony treats this like a, a real holiday, a holiday from being Roman by all reports. He's like, you know what? I like Greek dress. I'm interested in this food you've got going on, the culture. I'm going to hang out with the philosophers. I'm not going to do politics. Just want to learn and hang out, you know? Chill. Yeah. And of course, at this point, we presume they become lovers. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, Antony is actually married. Hey, that is awkward. Yeah. Mm. He's married to one of the most amazing women in Roman history, Fulvia. <laughs> Doesn't appreciate what he's got at all. No. Unfortunately, Fulvia and his brother Lucius decide that they're going to kick off a civil war with Octavian whilst he's in Alexandria. So he has to leave Cleopatra to go and deal with that whole situation and and calm everything down because things are looking very tense and very shaky for the Antony-Octavian alliance at this point in time. That is becoming increasingly dicey. Yeah. And in 40 BC, they strike the Treaty of Brundusium. And part of that deal where they kind of renew their promises to each other and what they're going to do with each other is that Antony has to marry Octavian's sister, Octavia. Ah, yes. But uh, that's uh, a marriage that has interesting consequences as well, because it's not like he really gives up on Cleopatra during all of this. No, no, it it does seem to be very much a political marriage. Mm. So is is he not married to Fulvia anymore or they're just kind of saying like fuck her because she's starting a civil war so you have to marry a different woman she actually died not long after yeah so when Antony comes to deal with the whole situation that she and Lucius have caused he is absolutely furious with her and she had just been trying to look out for his interests uh, in her own mind and (laughs) it it all it almost seems as though she dies of a broken heart because Mm -hmm. he is so angry with her debatable probably not probably not but (laughs) She is absolutely devastated. He is so furious with her. And then she dies. So, yeah. Mm. It's it's a bit of a sad ending for someone who is truly legendary. And let's continue on with history, shall we? 
I spoke with Joel Christensen last year about Homer, the idea of Homer, who the concept of Homer might have actually been, and generally the tradition of oral storytelling and the transmission of texts. Why do some things survive in the forms that they do? And what influence is that? It's one of those conversations where I just sat staring at the computer screen, like taking in every word. Because every additional thing Joel said opened up my mind a little bit more. But also, I'm biased because I'm absolutely obsessed with the idea of how and why some texts survive when others don't. I want the time machine that Joel mentions. Screw the consequences. One of the things that Albert Lord and other oralists show really convincingly is that theme creates diction and structure, all right? The theme of the Odyssey is very different from the theme of the Iliad, but the one place where their language gets really close is in book 22 when Odysseus is killing everybody, okay? And there are other ways, like there are books of the Iliad in which you have really strange language. The language of book 10 is very different from the rest of the poem. The language of book 21, when Achilles is fighting the river, is also really different from the rest of the poem. And you want to add something else in? The funeral um, games for Patroclus, very different language. And as you can imagine, over time, people have said, well, these books don't belong because they're not the same. And to me, and you know, anybody listening to this who's on the other side of the equation um, to, will, will object, but to me, this is very lazy thinking. Right? It's like going outside, looking at a tree, not liking its shape and saying, that's not a tree. That's something different. That branch needs to go. Right? For me, the, it is the job of a literary uh, interpreter um, to go to ridiculous extents to try to understand a piece of art in its own terms, rather than insisting that they should be able to change it, right? that there's something wrong with it. And so then this goes back again. Um, to the problem of transmission, right? Um, so if we accept the possibility that the Iliad and the Odyssey come out of an oral context, and if we accept in turn that part of their difference is connected to theme and audiences, right? The Iliad's a poem of war, it teaches you how to die. The Odyssey is a poem of life, it teaches you how, what surviving is for, right? If we have these two different things, why don't we have anything else if there was an oral tradition, right? Why don't we have more variants, right? Um, and then finally, how did we go from having an oral tradition to having a textual? And these, the, the, the fact is, you can't actually answer these questions. You can say what's likely, but you can't actually, without a time machine, which would cause its whole own problems, um, you can't actually solve them. We do know that the text we have was probably written down in Athens, and it was probably influenced by Athenian power and money around the time of the Persian Wars, but then nobody read it, okay? Here's the thing that people just don't understand. When you write down an oral tradition, people like don't read the transcript, all right? So Minna Skopta Jensen has a book called Writing Homer. Um, she says some things that they are a little out there, but one thing she, she, she asserts is that what probably happened is that in the first time they were written down, if they're written down in monumental form, um, they were deposited in a temple for safekeeping or somewhere else, and nobody touched them. Hmm. All right. Because you wouldn't suddenly change your, the way you enjoy art, right? If you're really into listening to music and someone's like, look, we have to pre preserve Taylor Swift for all time. We're going to write down everything. You're not going to start re reading the lyrics instead of listening. 
because that's not what you do with the genre, right? So when genres transform, in order for them to be enjoyed, uh, their use needs to transform. And so we see this happening in the texts that show up in the fourth century. So in Plato, in Aristotle, and others, we see evidence of people turning to written texts. But then it's really during the Hellenistic period and libraries like those at Alexandria, Antioch, Pella, um, where you divorce the epics from their performance context. And people suddenly start reading them and editing them and worrying about the right version. Uh, this next clip is a short one because I just couldn't pick from this episode. We talked about so much and kind of meandered around in our discussion of the Homeric heroes, particularly just how heroic they were or were not. I spoke with a brilliant and fun Laura Jenkinson Brown, creator of Greek Myth Comics, about those Homeric, and in this case, Virgilian heroes. You all know me. Normally, I don't suffer Aeneas. But Laura said something really interesting here about how Virgil's Aeneid would be seen if it were created today. And now I'm a bit obsessed with this idea. When when the heroes say, I am so-and-so and my fate has reached the heavens, they are factually speaking correct. But it does sound like a massive, massive brag. They, they're not humble braggers, really, are they? They're, no, no. They, I am straight up amazing. Be impressed. Because um, the gods know my name. But, you know, in a way that's kind of true. Well, they think it's true. Then we have to discuss whether the gods are just, to, you know, there for to make people feel better or make them feel worse. And anyway, that's a whole nother discussion. And we should talk about Aeneas because he's the third in the trilogy, sort of. Most of the memes about the Aeneid are about it being a copy of Homer and not as good. Fan fiction. And that really, really annoys me because if Virgil was writing now, he'd be so lauded for having made this really fantastic um subplot about another character and it's and it's not so nice about the greeks anymore and oh it's a bit more it's a bit gritty realism and there are some nods to homeric style and you know that you will get have you read them and people would think it was great that's so true okay i haven't in my own essence said yeah he's straight up taken this simile Hermes flying over the waves like a seabird is from the Odyssey book five and that my favorite bit where he and, and Odysseus kills a stag I think it's on Xerxes island and he kills a stag and he feeds it to his men and it's it goes on about what a monstrously huge stag this is wow he's he's so great to carry the stag it's so big yeah, he carries it around his neck yeah but Aeneas <laughs> seven stags <laughs> take that homer says virgil seven stags well probably Achates carried one like because he's always there last year i also spoke with jeremy swist about something pretty unique when it comes to the ancient mediterranean and the study of mythology how both of those things interact with metal music right this was such a fun conversation for so many reasons but just hearing how metal bands use and misuse the ancient world and ancient Greece and Rome specifically is pretty eye-opening. In the clip I chose, Jeremy talks specifically about the use of ancient Rome by certain bands and how they can be tied to the idea of Western supremacy and other dark and problematic shit. These topics are obviously super widespread throughout the study of these ancient people, and it's so important to recognize them. Especially like me as someone who's talking about these ancient cultures in a more flattering light. Like, I always want to make sure I recognize the way their history and mythology is very often misused and given these deeply racist undertones. And, well, Jeremy speaks about it so brilliantly. 
something I've been exploring is how a lot of bands, um, you know, that are, you know, politically explicitly right wing kind of have these nostalgic narratives of bringing back this mythologized past, um, particularly like Alexander's or the Roman Empire. And they think that this past can be achieved by this kind of nihilistic apocalyptic war. Uh, in which basically civilization is just torn down and then the only people that survive are, you know, the people who are, you know, the most fit to. And so for certain bands, that's, uh, that's, that's, it's pretty clear what kind of people they mean. And that can, and this, and by doing this, you can then return to a society in which these really, these patriarchal masculine warrior values are, are acceptable again. Um, you know, uh, for, for one thing, it's like, uh, a couple, there's a couple bands in Australia, New Zealand, um, you know, who, you know, sing about, uh, you know, we need to go back to, we need to, there's this, there's this one band in called Diocletian in New Zealand where they have a song called Restart Civilization. Uh, and, uh, basically it's, the whole song is just Restart Civilization, Romulus bidding Iron Begetting. Uh, we need to go back to Romulus and Remus because that was, you know, that's where we need to go again to in order to have society kind of aligned with the, the state of nature okay, um, in that sort of way. Um, and so they have like, and this band uses Romulus and Remus imagery to sort of convey that idea that, uh, you know, the Roman Roman values is what we need to return to. You know, the values that made uh, Rome and its people, you know, able to dominate the world. Yeah, great values. <laughs> yeah, you can see how that that's problematic. And... and our last clip of this very fun and nostalgic clip show is from my conversation with Amy Pistone. My first one, at least. She came back on to talk to Kinney this year, and man, that was amazing too. But the first time, Amy joined me to talk about Sophocles more broadly, the playwright I often leave behind because of my love for Euripides, but who does deserve quite a bit of appreciation himself. In this bit of our chat, Amy is talking about Sophocles' Philoctetes, a play I have not yet covered but absolutely will in time. <laughs> Particularly, though, about how the play could have been performed in terms of the actors playing each character. Because remember, Greek tragedy only ever had three people on stage at any time, and only three actors total, which means the actors would play more than one role. And sometimes those doubling roles could really add to the dramatic tone of the play. Plus, she does also bring up a very valid point about my main man that, fine, doesn't make him look too good. I think one of the things that's really cool about Sophocles is that he does make you kind of stare, stare into the abyss a little bit. But the other, just a cool, so people, I don't, I don't think this is how Sophocles intended this play, but mm. a cool thing that some people have done in modern stagings of it. And it's, it's possible. I just don't, I just don't think it's, it's how Sophocles would have had in mind, but you know, it doesn't really matter what Sophocles had in mind. <laughs> um, there <laughs> are, been dead a while. There are people who treat, so at the end, Heracles shows up and like, you know, here, give them the bow, we'll go to Troy. There are people who suggest that, because uh, I think the actor, I, I'm, it, it's at least possible that the actor who played Odysseus played Heracles. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know if we know for sure. Some plays, like, we know for sure who doubled. And I don't know, I don't remember if we know for sure with this one, but it's possible it was the same actor. And there are some people who want us to see this ending as 
Odysseus dressed up as Heracles at mm. the end. And so that like, instead of like the forthright, like Neoptolemus winning the day with his not wanting to deceive Philoctetes, that we are, we are meant to see this as, as Odysseus dressed himself up like Heracles to get the bow because like he's like <laughs> trickery did win out in the, in the end. Yeah. And which I think is such a cool, just kind of thinking through that. Like I said, I don't think that's, I don't think that's how Sophocles would have originally staged it, but it's, it's such an interesting twist to think about, you know, what, what, what if this is like, cause Odysseus is so tricksy. And like, I remember my mind being absolutely blown the first time someone pointed out to me that there's no external corroboration for any of the stories that, Odysseus tells his men are all dead. There's no witnesses. There's no evidence. Like <laughs> we have no reason to think that he that the Cyclops and like that any of these things happened because he could just make that up. Oh yeah, no one else ever saw the Lystragonians. Yeah, I and mean. the and the stories are so neatly like it's such a good ring composition that it it does kind of make us wonder did did he just make all of this up? Which is like I. People, you know, people divide into like, are you an Iliad person or an Odyssey person? And I just love how much the Odyssey never gives you firm footing. That like, mm -hmm. maybe he had all these traumatic adventures or maybe he just ditched his men and was like, whatever. And it's telling the story that will get him, that will get him home. So he's, he's yeah. crafting a story that, or his men died, but like in a much less dramatic way. But he is telling these stories that, that subtly emphasize all of the right things to make sure that he gets good hospitality and he gets sent home safely and like I love I, I love the just how convoluted and how how unstable the plot is you know the like we have no idea what's going on which is kind of the experience of everyone who ever talks to Odysseus like are you telling the truth it sounded plausible <laughs> but like it would sound plausible you're good with words mm. Oh, Odysseus, is he secretly just a liar? It's very likely. Nerds, that was so much fun to put together. Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, just like Tuesday's episode of regular clips and moments for the anniversary, I just really enjoyed looking back on the show. Because of how it works for me creating it, I rarely, if ever, look back on the scripts I've written and recorded or conversations I've had with people because I'm always too busy preparing new ones. But looking back is really fun. It reminds me how cool it is. This is what I get to do. And I get to feel so incredibly proud at the content that I've put out into the world. Sharing these stories and characters, these incredible and important facts and ideas and concepts, research that people would never have access to outside of academia. And most importantly, I get to be reminded how thankful I am that these brilliant authors and academics and experts just want to come on my show and share this knowledge with me and with all of you. I say this so often, but it's always true. It's seriously fucking cool. I, I didn't get the chance to cover even half of the conversations that I've been lucky enough to have on the show in this episode. There have been so many now. I really hate leaving anyone out. Like, I, I feel really bad, but I just have to. So just know that the people left out here are left out mostly because I just filled up the length of the episode before I had a chance to listen to the others. But the link in this episode's description to is a playlist 
of all the conversations that I've had on the show, not just the ones in this episode. So if you want to hear any specific conversation, re-listen or discover something new, remind yourself of conversations I've had in the past, just check that link and you will find all of them. And you might learn something seriously fucking cool. Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. More on that to come. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Thank you all for five years of this supremely fun job. I am Liv, and I love this shit. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.